0: Today's show brought to you by our friends at the Breeders' Cup. Saturday, September 10th has five Breeders' Cup Challenge Series win-and-you're-in races with two more on Sunday. The two stateside races come to us from Kentucky Downs with the FanDuel Turf Sprint, a win-and-you're-in for the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint, as well as the Kentucky Turf Cup, a win-and-you're-in for the Longines Turf. All winners will receive entry fees paid by Breeders' Cup, a $10,000 award to the nominator, as well as a $10,000 travel allowance for horses stabled outside of Kentucky. Coverage kicks off at 5 p.m. Eastern on CNBC. The other Challenge Series races come to us from across the pond with three stakes from Leopardstown on Saturday, September 10th, and the Curra with two more on Sunday, September 11th. You can tune into FanDuel TV for coverage, and we'll be talking about them all on our Late Week Show and Horse Players Happy Hour as well. Today's show also brought to you by Kentucky Downs. Horsemen, handicappers, and racing fans won't want to miss a single day of the seven-day fan duel meet at Kentucky Downs in early September. Owners and trainers will compete for the world's richest overnight purses, and horse players will enjoy the best betting opportunities in America with large fields and low takeout. Thanks to the Kentucky Thoroughbred Development Fund, registered Kentucky breads will run for 150,000 in maiden races with allowance races starting at 160,000, 17 stakes throughout the meet totaling 10.7 million including eight graded stakes. Got several days left uh, this week, Thursday the 8th, we've got the 10th, the 11th and the 14th as well. If you want to go in person, reserve seats are on sale at kentuckydowns.com. We've also got the last of the contests happening this weekend on Sunday, an $800 contest. If you want to sign up for that, in the slash king turf. There's unique, and then there's Kentucky Downs. Hello and welcome to the in the money players podcast. This is our show for Wednesday, September 7th. I'm your host Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn bunker once again. And yeah, it's been a long time, two months or so since I sat in the bunker and did uh, one of our shows. It's good to be home, even though it's not going to be for long getting ready actually within a couple of hours to hop on a plane and fly to Nashville. And go to Kentucky Downs for this Thursday. Hang out with our Global Tote friends. See our Kentucky Downs friends. All kinds of fun people. Sounds like some Breeders' Cup people going to be around too out there. So very much looking forward to that. No, um, no no, rest for this traveler. But hey, you can't complain when your job, quote unquote, is following horses all the, all around the country. We will be recapping Labor Day weekend. And my goodness, is there an awful lot to recap. Looking out to... Uh, Del Delmar, of course, Saratoga as well. And to do it with me, we bring in the man who's been uh, helping with recaps all summer long and a bit before that as well. Popular guest on the network. You know him from his work over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com as well as many other places. He is Nick Tamaro. Nick, how are things? How are you, uh, how are you recovering from the Saratoga meet?
1: I'm doing great, Pete. I'm just – I'm doing the normal recovery. I'm not the uh... – limousine riding high flying jet setting son of a gun that you are that's off to Kentucky Downs in just two days but I'm I'm going through the normal post Saratoga post Labor Day slumber
0: yeah we call it the saddest day of the year for a reason we, we were so sad yesterday on Tuesday the 6th we couldn't even get our acts together to get a to get a show out it's funny you mentioned the great Ric Flair catchphrase you know I have a t-shirt with that emblazoned upon it, that wonderful phrase. And I was not able somehow not able to find a single opportunity at Saratoga to wear it. I was a little bit, I was a little bit disappointed in myself, but you know, we'll, we'll do better throughout the fall.
1: That might be the worst news of the day that you didn't uh, you didn't utilize that beauty because that is one of the, one of the greatest sets of uh, phrases and sayings you're ever going to find in sport.
0: Well, Ric Flair is a legend for a, for, for a reason. Um, Well, yeah, we'll get, we'll, we'll put that on the list. Wrestling related shirts to get on. I, you know, I got, I got the Andre, the giant one out, but I didn't get to Ric Flair this summer. Let's speak. It's talking about legends, right? We're throwing out names like Andre and and Ric Flair. Let's talk about a horse now that might be on his way to, uh, to, to similar status, at least in some quarters, Nick, we're going to start not with Saratoga, but out on the West coast with this year's running of the Pacific classic. And the superlatives, they've been thrown around left and right as it pertains to Flightline, and, and certainly with the, with good reason, based on an effort that visually and on the clock looked like that rarest of rare stuff. I'll just ask you the obvious question. How good was Flightline? How much did he impress you on uh, this weekend?
1: Yeah, I, I think jaw-dropping is probably a word that you could use. I, I, I will admit it's quite foolishly. That I forgot when the Pacific Classic was lost in the post Saratoga portion of my Saturday evening, and as my phone started to light up with words like "freak" and "oh my god" and and things like that, I immediately called up the the Delmar feed as quickly as I could and, and watched it. Uh, shortly thereafter, and uh, and I mean, it was he's deserving of all the praise that can be heaped upon him. We talked a little bit last week about how excited this we I was specifically about this show because of what we were going to learn about Jockey Club Gold Cup candidates and, and Breeders' Cup Aspirants, including Flightline. And, and I think he lived up to the billing plus, 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 maybe. And I was won over by Flightline in the Met Mile. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it would be foolish. And I think in many ways my, my general tack would have been to take the approach of, well, you know, this is a horse that runs by appointment only and this and that. And after he won the Met Mile, I thought, you know, it really doesn't matter. He might run every three, four months, but when he does, he's so incredibly good. And that was the best performance I've seen in a very, very long time, certainly since Go Zappers, Islin. And from a speed figure perspective, but just from a visual perspective, you know, it reminded you of some of the incredibly smashing wins we've seen by older horses over the years, including Frosted in the Met Mile, Quality Roads Don. You know, uh, and then races, of course, prior to 2000 that really stick out. It was amazing. Uh, He is a a tremendous racehorse and one that while, uh, you know, he may not exactly be made of iron, what he is made of is enough to impress just about anybody, including any skeptic, as he proved quite clearly on Saturday.
0: The buyer speed figure came back 126, extremely rare air. Ghost Zapper did have a 127 in the slop in in the Iceland back in the day. And then you had horses in the 90s like Will's Gold and Gentleman. And, excuse me, Will's Way, Formal Gold, and Gentleman putting up 128s. Those are the highest buyer speed figures within the published era. I believe, if I'm remembering this right, that if you made a buyer-style speed figure for Secretariat's Belmont, you would have got something in the low 130s. I mean, how far back are we going, Nick, to come up with a horse that you feel like... Uh, we can compare to, to flight line. How, how, how crazy do we want to get here? I mean, I think the
1: secretary comparison, at least secretary Belmont as far as individual performances go, it deserves some mention. And, you know, when sham, when sham hurt himself in the early part of that Belmont, the balance of the field was not exactly impressive. So, I mean, secretary did, secretary ran an unbelievable race. And, and I think the, I don't I guess what I would say is it's not unfair to invoke secretariat as far as a comparison point from that performance alone. It was that good and it was that sort of routine in terms of how efficiently Flightline ran and how summarily he completely dismissed his rivals. It's um, it's it's deserving of that kind of, of praise, I would say, because it was it was definitely that good. I mean, I don't remember a specific Handicap division or even three-year-old division performance that was that impressive, that impressive visually, that impressive on the clock in quite some time. So I think going back to the spectacular big secretariat type of era, I think it's totally fair at this point.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree. Now, a couple points I'll make. One to the positive, which is th- this was not some common field in behind him. I mean, <laughs> to have a horse running second in the form of uh, of Country Grammar, who's won multiple Grade Ones over ten million, you know, you can quibble and say, "Oh, well, so much of that was in one race." Who cares? He still had plenty of other good performances. I mean, the lowest you could possibly imagine him running in that spot was a you know a hundred, low hundreds buyer speed figure, and this horse absolutely pasted him by nineteen lengths. The only thing I'll say about the historical comparisons, and I can understand some people's teeth itching a little bit when I come on here and say it was secretariat-like, is that I do think you I'm, – I'm totally cool acknowledging the fact that the ability to stay on the racetrack – I don't want to say even stay healthy, but just the idea of being able to get out there and start – multiple times in a year and over the course of several years that is a skill and that is a skill worthy of praise and if at the end of somebody's career you want to say hey i still think you can't say this horse was better than x y or z because he only did you know whatever in the however many few starts he's gonna have ended up having in his career i totally get that but i have zero issue in looking at a single data point comparison and, and saying that that was, you know, I mean, I, 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 can't name more than, I can't name more than three and I'm not even sure I could get the three races that that have impressed me more. It was just, it was just awesome. And I think it sets him up obviously now to go to the breeders cup classic as an odds on favorite, which he was in, he is now in both the international betting and also closed in the second of the future pools, for the Breeders' Cup Classic betting at four to five, I'll ask you the the toughest question of all: at four to five, or what are we looking at here? Buy, sell, or hold? Oof, four
1: to five, um, hold. I would say. I don't know how much I'm buying it. You know, I guess if it's a if it's all bets or action, that's a little different because, of course, you're always worried about Flightline making a race. You know, the fact that he runs so sparingly is, is always of some concern. But, you know, if he starts, if all things being equal and we get the field that we're sort of anticipating, which probably includes one of the vanquished runners behind him in the Pacific Classic, we're going to talk soon about the Jockey Club Gold Cup. So we'll have the winner of the Jockey Club Gold Cup Olympian. We'll have life is good. We'll have a couple of also runs from uh, from both the Woodward and the Jockey Club Gold Cup. I mean, there's virtually no chance he goes off four to five. Right. Right. And he's probably one to two at most. So if you're the type of person that really likes to load up on a, you know, on a sub even money shot at this point, you're probably buying at four to five because if he's in the gate, he's less than that price.
0: Yeah, that's right. But I still agree. It's not a strong buy or even really a buy because of how much can go wrong between now and then I'd almost rather for my own wagering target him as a single on the end, of a pick whatever bet and, and take my chances on the, on the day, even though in theory, the the value is more just because the one skill he hasn't shown is the ability to, you know, um, race a lot. So it just feels like a horse that maybe more than the average horse, there's a chance something could go awry between now and then. But yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't lay it. I certainly wouldn't sell it. Um, It's it's the other thing that's going to be interesting is to see, is everybody going to show up? Who we're hoping shows up, and and the main the main rival, I think, in terms of how it affects Flightline's chance, likely to be Life Is Good. And the more I think about this race for, from the Life Is Good connections perspective, the more I think they might just say, "What the heck? Let's roll the dice and and um, and take a shot at the classic because th- they already have you know they already have a, a dirt mile on the resume and here's an opportunity to potentially do something really, really special. And even if they were to only run second, that's still something I think answers some questions about life is good. A horse that there is a narrative around about based on the Dubai world cup that he doesn't want to go 10 furlongs to run, to run a good second to a freak probably still enhances his, his value commercially and you somehow beat the horse and all of a sudden you know forget about what that does for your potential um for your potential value so but what is your gut on where we're going to see life is good do you think they will uh, go ahead and and go to the classic and and potentially be a pace rival for Flightline, who you know did not have a pace rival in a meaningful way in the pacific classic so if you want to say there's one question still to answer maybe that's the one
1: yeah, I mean, I, I, it wasn't the greatest vote of confidence that he's going to the classic that Elliot Walden put a, a poll up on Twitter uh, asking whether Life is Good should run in the sprint or the dirt mile. I mean, I know very little about these, and we certainly have access to people that have much more much more knowledge industry related on what it does for his value, depending on what you do. I don't see how him winning another dirt mile makes him a, a more valuable stallion at all. I mean, it seems like right now he he probably falls into that thirty dollars to $40,000 stud fee range for his first year. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's probably a, a loaded book for him. He's going to be, he's going to stand at his, his owner's farm anyway, but you know, running second and, or I mean, running second I think is just as valuable as winning the dirt mile. If you're running second to, to the great flight line, who's going to be marketed as potentially the, you know, the, the next super stallion. And on top of that, you have the opportunity to beat him, and then if you beat him, I mean now you're talking about maybe we're looking at a seventy-five to a hundred thousand dollars stud fee in his first year, and this is just a horse at a totally different level. So I don't think there's any uh, any doubt where he should go. I think it would be, you know, WinStar has sort of always purported to be a sporting type of outfit and I think in that vein, they've really only got one option. They've got to try and tackle the beast that is his flight line in the most important race for older horses of the year and and it does become a little interesting because, you know, we want to look at things objectively and we want to take everything into consideration and as you mentioned, it was not a a particularly stout pace in the race on Saturday in the Pacific Classic. I don't know how much it mattered because he won by the length of a football field and, (laughs) and he probably would have been able to handle it no matter what, but you know, yeah, I mean, it, it makes you wonder, okay, what could happen if there is a little bit of a battle? You think about, well, what is there even a possibility of there being a pace battle? Or can can Irad and, and Flavian Pratt sort of work it out ahead of time that uh, that things are not particularly fast on the front end? The third, the yeah, fourth quarter of the race was coded blue in time form. Uh, he also got 152 time form US, really. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, pick your poison. It, it's, it's, Maybe the race wasn't as fast, and I think because the final time was so fast that it could look as, as if some of the internal fractions were a little bit slower. But, I mean, good God, you know, that horse just, he is like a machine. I mean, his stride is just so fluid and it's so long, and, and you think to yourself, I mean, there's nobody that could be in front of this horse that he wouldn't be able to run down. And what would the circumstances be that would keep him from being able to hold off whoever was running at in late? You know, life is good would make for an interesting challenge. Obviously, Olympian is a horse that could stay within range early. I don't know if he can ultimately withstand that without paying the, the hefty price. But I want to see the best horses tackle the flight line. This is such a rarity in that we've got so much depth in the handicapped division. Let's get them all in the gate together and see what happens. It'll just be a great, great opportunity for racing and for racing fans.
0: Fingers crossed for sure. I will cop to this. Epicenter, who I was... You know, talking about buying five to one before the Pacific Coast Classic. I did the Pacific Classic. I did hold fire on that on that move, and I was glad that I did after this because surely going to be um, five to one on the day, if not if not a little bit higher at this point. Even as pr- impressive as his resume is, assuming that uh, Flightline makes his way to the gate, uh, what what price are you guessing Epicenter might be at this point after seeing what we saw last weekend? I would say, you know, it's going to
1: depend. I mean, first of all, it's going to depend on field size, right? I mean, there were 23 individual interests in the Breeders' Cup Classic Future wager. Going through them, I mean, realistically, I probably only see about 8, 9, or 10 that could be in the race. And, and I mean, you're figuring that a handful of those are going to be 50 to 1 or more if flight line is is, you know, 2 to 5 or 1 to 2. So Epicenter probably ends up somewhere around seven or eight, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, I can't see him being, being much less. Um, I have a friend who made a big, big future wager in the first pool on Cyberknife at 17 to one. He's available at 40 to one in the second pool. And it's probably realistically more like 80 to one. because it's unlikely to go. My first captain future from the first pool that was uh, 68 to one. He closed at about 113 to one in the second pool. So, Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think he ends up being, Epicenter ends up being somewhere in that eight to one range or so. The only way you get substantially less than that is if Life is Good doesn't run, you'll get a lower price at Epicenter. I think you'll also have a lower likelihood of him winning. Yeah,
0: that that all sounds right on the money. While we're talking about Breeders' Cup Classic, let's go to the other Breeders' Cup Classic win in your in-race from the weekend. It was won by Olympiad, who returned to form. 105 buyer speed figure there um Timeform US had it right around the same a race that was coated blue in a couple of spots by by Timeform US I'll, I'll cop to my own I don't want to call it a betting mistake maybe I'll call it an overthink Nick this was honestly one of the few days I was able to get to the paddock as often as I usually like to at Saratoga and I was a little nervous he was I wanted you know I wanted to forgive Olympiad I'd made him my top pick looking at them come by in the paddock, he got like very warm on what wasn't the warmest day in the world. I ended up basically having my bet, but whatever. I still got the cash, which was nice, but it, um, I just don't know. I I mean, he just, Olympiad is a very, very good horse. It sounds like they're definitely going to go, but boy, would he have to improve to get to the, uh, get to what we saw out in, uh, in the West Coast a little bit later in the day. Am I underrating him at all?
1: No, I don't think you're underrating him at all. I mean, and, and, you know, the handicapping conundrum that faced players in the Jockey Club Gold Cup was that it's extremely difficult to regularly take horses like Olympiad off of his Whitney performance, especially when they're going to be favored and there's really no discernible excuse whatsoever for their last race. And, And I will forever die on the hill of performances like his Whitney being a harbinger of things to come. So I took a chance against Olympiad. I'm not surprised that he won I think his win was um, obviously very, very pace aided. He had a terrific trip, and, and it's it's one of those scenarios where a, a a person who's offering the opposing viewpoint to me would say, "Well, of course he had a good trip. He's a speed horse. He makes his own trip." But he's a speed horse who also needs to be sitting on top of slow paces, yes, right? Because when he got involved in a race with a faster pace with a better horse, he completely and totally disappeared. So he's a bit of a paper tiger. And um, he's a good, I've always liked him. He's a good horse. He's born in the wrong year for uh, many purposes because uh, amongst his fellow four-year-olds are horses like Life is Good and and Flightline, who at this point are, you know, Life is Good is clearly better than him and Flightline's a lot better than him. And I don't think I'm being unfair in saying that. So um, if anybody cashed on Olympia, then I I commend them. Um, But I, I offer them a lot of good luck if they plan on backing him again. You know, the story of the race, as I mentioned, was the pace. There was just no pace on whatsoever. They went almost 50 seconds to the half and 13 and changed to the three quarters, which obviously made Olympiad's task uh, significantly easier. I mean, we're talking about early time-form U.S. pace figures of 108 and 116. You compare those to what Flightline did in the early part of the Pacific Classic when he's in the upper 140s. What that means is that Flightline will burn Olympiad off the track. I mean, he, he will, he'll have a hard time making the half-mile pole if he gets within range of flight line in the early stages, if they can distribute their energy with the same uh, the same type of, of rhythmic motion that they did this time around. I know I'm a little bit of a homer because I've always, i I've kind of grown to like him. I actually thought first captain ran an, an underrated race. I think he could easily be a clunk up in the in the Breeders' Cup Classic, um, you know, a la the uh, uh, FNX in the 2015 a Breeders' Cup Classic, somebody that just gets a piece of it at 25 or 30 to 1. Um, because he's a, he's an off-the-pace horse that's going to keep grinding. He got no setup whatsoever. So put him in a scenario where maybe he gets a little bit more to run at. I think he could be interesting. The disappointment of the race, and I know he ran third, and it sounds like I'm being a little harsh, but I thought American Revolution had a great trip, and and I felt at the quarter pole like he would probably gather in Olympian somewhat easily and go on with it being like a, a true distance type. And Olympian kind of got away from him. And so I was a little underwhelmed with American Revolution's effort. I'll be interested to see – if for some reason, uh, this is my concern with Windstar, right, is that they may say, oh, well, let's run life as good in the dirt mile because we can always take a chance that maybe things heat up in American Revolution could do it for us. I wonder if maybe him not running a little bit better, and I know I'm talking in circles a tad, but I wonder if him maybe not running a little bit better might get them off of that idea. It's going to I'm very hard-pressed to imagine. American Revolution beating a horse like Flightline. So it was a jockey for Gold Cup that I'm glad happened, but I don't take much away from it that I think is going to gonna give us a lot of great insight into the Breeders' Cup.
0: I think that's completely fair. I will just make the the flow excuse for American Revolution a little bit. You know, I, I felt – I didn't think it was – I did not think it was ride or error, unlike another situation we'll talk about in a minute. I just feel like it, the race didn't – just a bad situation to let a very good horse – like Olympiad be able to sit on the slow pace and do his thing. I I think American revolution needs a true run race to show his, to show his best form. And there's plenty of valuable targets for him um, down the line and, and we'll see what they decide to do, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna evaluate him off that performance in a, in a negative way. I'm not, even though now, I guess Olympiad's had him twice in a row in uh, in the form book, but I'm not going to say under the right circumstances American Revolution couldn't reverse that form with, with Olympiad, at least. And, you know, I'm an Olympiad fan, but I do think, you know, we talk about this a lot when uh, Sean Borman comes on these airwaves about situations and how different situations suit certain horses. And to me, you couldn't have drawn up a better situation for Olympiad. And, and I just thought, you know, I agree. It was kind of punchless. It wasn't pretty, but I I just think situationally you can make that excuse for American Revolution if you, if you wanted to be a little bit more optimistic than than your view of him. Does that does that sound fair to you, or am I making excuses where they don't belong?
1: Um, I, you know, I I hear you. If he hadn't already been beaten by Olympiad in the Foster, I'd probably feel a little bit more inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. But you know, I'm I'm one that feels like when you take a, you know, this was, this was the conversation about Zandon and the Jim Dandy and that he, maybe he was too close in the Jim Dandy and that he would have more of a chance in a, in the Travers going back to his more uh, style. He's more accustomed to the problem that I have is that when you take a closer, a confirmed closer, and you put them close to the pace in a slow paced race, I actually think it helps their chances exponentially because they're the finishers. They're the ones that, you know, are going to finish. And, and if, they're, if they're dealing with a smaller deficit and, and probably the same amount of, of you know, finish, finishing kick that they normally have, I think it gives them a decided edge. And, and this is a situation where, you know, he was within a length of Olympiad at the quarter pole and he lost the race by two. And I just didn't expect that Olympiad would be getting away from him late. And I almost wonder if maybe some of what we saw from American Revolution last year was a bit of a mirage in that the races where he pulled clear late going a mile and an eighth, we're against New York Reds, and maybe that cigar mile was the race that really should have indicated to us what he wants to do most, Mm -hmm. and that he does want to be a shorter distance type horse, and then he might pack that really potent kick at a mile um, that's needed to be successful there. The problem, of course, we're dealing with a two-turn dirt mile this year, and he might be one that's a little bit more suited to a one-turn type of configuration, because this is the second time now he's been in the stretch of a race where he's had basically dead aim on the leader, and He just kind of paddled his way home. You know, he just, he swam a little bit and didn't quite get it done. So I'm thinking maybe he might need that cutback.
0: I like that idea. I like him as a horse to gallop along in a truly run race and be able to grind. Sometimes those slow paces, you've got to be able to quicken. I don't think he had that gear. I think Olympiad was able to have that gear because of the the, the slow pace he was able to set, but I like your idea of, of him on the cutback and Hey, maybe a repeat in a race like the, the, the cigar mile isn't, uh, isn't out of the question for him. We'll see how they decide to campaign him going forward. Let's talk about another slow-paced race, <laughs> the one that got me. I don't often go on tilt at the track. <laughs> this one got me very, very close to on tilt. It, I'm talking about the Flower Bowl, more win and you're in action for the Breeders' Cup. This one for the Philly and Turf. First, let's give props to the winner, Virginia Joy, who ran a 98 buyer speed figure. Uh, came back very similar on the time form scale. Uh, the coding uh, you'll not be surprised at all to hear was blue throughout on the time form us scale. But this one for me was um, all about the, the, for me it was about Warlike Odyssey and what I believe was the ride that got her beat. And, you know, plenty of smart people disagree. That's great. That's what makes horse races. But for me, this was one where she was just never in good position. And I thought ran as hard as she possibly could have coming home and was just left, with too much to do, which is never something you want to see um, from a, from a elite level racehorse, which I believe uh, she is certainly in, in her division, but all the more frustrating when, when the horses literally one to five, <laughs> what did you think of the flower bowl, Mick? Well,
1: I mean, look, there's no mincing words. This was a, this was not a ride that Joel Rosario is going to put on his greatest <laughs> stance, right? This was a, it was a bad ride. It, it was a, You know, one of the things that we've grown to love about Joel that I know I have is that he has that Jerry Bailey and Ramon Dominguez-like ability to get into a spot or get into a potential jackpot and work his way out very quickly, right? I I tell people, especially people that may not have followed racing as closely 10 or 12 years ago, that Ramon Dominguez never studied a horse twice in a race. He studied, he studied very briefly, and then he got the horse comfortable and everything was fine. And so you never worried about that going on. Joel is very, very similar to that. I think there's also an ability on a jockey's part to take a situation where they're in some traffic or they're in a dicey situation and minimize it by the way they study, whether they pull the reins very hard, whether they you know move their horse to the outside. There's a variety of different things they can do. Irad Ortiz is very good at this as well. Elite level riders always are. The problem in this situation is that Joel was in a bad spot from the start. And I was watching the race on the, on the Saratoga live show with a, a, a novice, somebody that doesn't know. And he even said to me going around the clubhouse turn, isn't that horse a little too far back? And I said, <laughs> yes, there's no question that he is way too, he is way, way too far back. And the thing that you realized at that point was not only was there no pace on, which I wasn't over overly concerned that Warlike Goddess couldn't win a paceless race. But you knew also that she was either gonna have to deal with traffic or have to end up waiting to go on. And and so Joel just didn't really have a good coherent plan. And and I think that he probably got a little overly confident in her and he put her in a situation where she had way too much to do. And you know, a week before he had a relatively similar situation happen with Jackie's Warrior, only similar in that he lost. Well, in both Warlike Goddess and Jackie's Warriors last races, he spent a stretch drive posing for photos and, and, you know, and and, and armchair riding them because they didn't need to really be ridden out to the finish. And I almost wonder in in a bizarre way if that gave him a little bit too much confidence in each of them and and if he, you know, took for granted that these are still horse races and they're not machines and you can't can't ask them to do too much uh, because they'll come up short. And, and while I thought Jackie's Warrior was a little more underwhelming, than more like Goddess was, I think she was much more of a victim of circumstance. It's obviously a situation where he asked a little more of her. Perhaps he had a little bit more confidence than he should have had in her. And I thought that he was very classy afterwards in, in talking about it. I thought Bill Mott was as well. Bill Mott certainly a, a guy who's been around a long time. He wasn't going to wasn't gonna crush Joelle for the ride. But um, I'm sure there were moments where he probably wanted to. Um, not nearly as much as all the betting public did because, uh, look, the criticism that he got, he deserved. And there could be people that think that it was undeserved, but in my opinion, they're just completely wrong. And and let's be realistic. Joel is a guy who gets a tremendous amount of praise. heaped done him very frequently and deservedly so. And, you know, that means that when you do, when, when you mess one up, you're going to get the opposite. And that's how it goes, right? It's It's a world where you have to be somewhat fair.
0: I think that's I think that's very well put in, in, in all regards. And there was there was another point that was made that wasn't so much to defend the ride, so much as to say, you know it's a paceless race, you know it's a closer, you know it's Joel who is known to, you know, we, we all recognize his his brilliance most of the time, but when he makes mistakes it tends to be asleep at the switch. <laughs> in a very similar regard to, to somebody who, who would make the point to me, do you really want to key your day around a one to five shot like that? I mean, I think that's a fair point, but that's different than saying that it wasn't the ride that, that got her beat. Cause it certainly was. I mean, we're talking about a situation where she came home and something just shading over 21 seconds. There's only so fast you can go. She needed to have an opportunity to just be in the race earlier. And I, I was hoping that would get recognized and she'd have been in more of an attacking position. She'd certainly done that in the past and and under Rosario as well. So it was just very, it was disappointing. I think she's better than that. And, you know, the question now remains open of are they going to get uh, because of the distance, are they going to think about trying the turf as opposed to the Philly and mare turf? I mean, who knows, maybe off that, you end up assuming she doesn't run in between, which she may. But if that's the running line coming into the Breeders' Cup, you will get a much better price, I think, than another facile win, uh, even though there are these circumstances behind it. Have you heard, Nick, what the plans are for her? Do do you think they'll run her one more time before uh, the big dance at Keeneland? I don't think they'll run her again. Uh, I just don't
1: know what's out there for her. And I, I wouldn't run her in the Joe Hurst Turf Classic unless you really, you know that it's going to be a small field. Obviously, Gufo was a possibility for that race, but he's running at Kentucky Downs on Saturday. So, you know, I think they'll lean towards the turf. Um, I think the mile on 316th is just much, much, much too short. And, and that's why I think they'll ultimately go that direction. And I think it makes the most sense. I think she actually becomes pretty interesting because when you consider it, I mean, our domestic contingent is the definition of weak, And and who knows what we'll get from overseas in terms of, of the turf. Obviously, we could get some horses that are, Yabir himself would be problematic. But, you know, we've seen Yabir over here run a relatively average race. He's now missed a couple of dances that he was supposed to be over here for. So I would definitely be pointed in that direction. I think she's a true distance filly and one that really benefits from, from going longer. You know, one of the other things i was going to throw out there, but one of the ironic things about this horse is that you know, the rides that she's gotten have been plenty, plenty maligned in the past. Part of it is because Julian LaPerue is, is the most criticized jockey probably of the last 15 years. And, you know, Julian made one mistake on her, and that was pulling the trigger a little early in the Philly and Mayor Turf last year, when even he probably didn't think she was going to get to the lead as quickly as she did. And she ended up losing that race to Love's Only You. You know, it was pointed out by a couple of different people on social media that Joel let her drag her back to last in a race where she ended up losing to Virginia Joy. So if we're going to compare the, the, the respective bad bonehead decisions and Joel leads Julian by a flight line like margin.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, going too fast in a race that falls apart against world-class competition is a little bit different than being way, way off a slow pace to horses you're supposed to beat in your sleep. No offense to Virginia joy, but I mean, this is not one that I'm seeing going forward as a, as a, a major player at events like uh, the Breeders' Cup. And I don't think you'll think I'm selling her short when I say that.
1: No, not at all. And that was the other problem with the race. And believe me, I mean, I, I would have no issue with taking the hard stand against a horse like Warlike Goddess, but it was like, okay, who's going to beat her, right? And one of the things that she had done in the Glens Falls was race so much closer to the pace. And so you felt like, well, I mean, she's probably not going to get wired because Joelle seemed to realize that you know, he can plan her in third or fourth a couple lengths off the lead, and as soon as they hit the turn the first time, I thought to myself, she's already in a bad spot because he's dragged her back, she's got everybody in front of her, and you knew they were just dawdling on the front end. I mean, to think about what Virginia Joy was able to get away with on the front end, and that this margin ended up being basically a neck, yeah, it, it says all you need to know is that we're like God, it's just so much the best by a mile.
0: Let's talk about the other winning your in race on the weekend, and then we'll go to some grade one action from Saratoga for juveniles. But let's talk a little bit about the Delmar Handicap, the grade two race that closed out the Pacific Classic, Descartes, bit of a denouement after the craziness of, uh, of Flightline. But certainly a rock solid performance from Gold Phoenix, 98 on the buyer speed figure scale, 121.0 raw rating on, uh, on Timeform U.S. What kind of a player do you think Gold Phoenix is in the national turf division going forward, Nick? Or, or do you think he's more going to be a player with some more of the valuable prizes they have out there in California?
1: Yeah, probably more regional than national. You know, this has not been a division where the the Californians have held up very well on a national stage. And, you know, I could see him ending up in, the, in a race like the Breeders' Cup turf, and he'd be a big long shot. Um, you know, for comparison purposes, you're looking at a horse like Tango, 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 who spent a lot of time on the East Coast, and then he wasn't uh, wasn't particularly competitive here. Um, so, you know, I, I think he's it was a nice win, and obviously it capped a pretty tremendous day for Flavian Pratt, but this feels like a horse who has yeah, probably more uh, San Luis Obispo than uh, than Breeders' Cup Classic, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Most of his ownership is regional, and of course, it's our good friends at Little Red Feathers, so I'm sure they them and their partners had a. There was probably a party on the veranda after the <laughs> uh, the nightcap in Del Mar uh, on Pacific Classic Day.
0: That's definitely a safe bet. Definitely a safe bet that they were rocking in the suites and up on the veranda. But yeah, but I, I I agree wholeheartedly. A horse that will surely have some more valuable prizes to come for our pals out there. Let's talk about uh, the the two year old action at Saratoga. And we'll go backwards with starting with the hopeful traditional closing day saratoga race it rained on the parade a little bit but uh th- this was a horse that uh, I was very pleased to uh to see run so well under the under the circumstances the buyer came back in 92. how seriously are you taking this form as a pointer going forward simply because of the conditions under it was uh it, it, it was run with the, with the heavy slop
1: so Forte is interesting because he ran extremely well in his debut. And but the concern coming out of it was that he really didn't face a particularly good field. And he looked like a bet against in the Sanford. Well then in the Sanford, he got no setup whatsoever, and he still put in a pretty decent late bid behind what looked like a nice winner. So he is probably he is not as bad as his Sanford, but maybe not as good as his debut fig, if that makes sense. I also wonder just a tad about where he caps out distance-wise. And one of the things that always makes me skeptical about the hopeful is that you can get an early-season two-year-old that is ideally suited to a sprint type of trip, and the, the hopeful suits them very well. Um, you know, would I rate Forte ahead of a horse like Damon's Mound, who beat Gulfport pretty handily in the Saratoga Special, and, and looks like he's pointed to some two-turn objectives at uh, at Churchill coming up? I, I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'll probably put them on, you know, on pretty equal, uh, equal level playing field. I, I thought Forte got an excellent ride from Irad. I thought he handled the track extremely well, which um, I don't think is a particularly big surprise. So I think the good, the best thing about him is that his ownership group is the type that wants to run in major races in New York. So he will run in the Champagne more than likely, and I think we'll get a much better sense of who he is. You know, I I could see him being um, a little bit like Witt, who, you know, he kind of draws a a few comparisons to, looking like he might have that profile of an off the pace sprinter rather than one that truly wants a a tremendous amount of distance. But it was a crazy price on a horse that had been a huge favorite in, in, quite honestly, what really was a much tougher spot last time out. So it was one of those where, you know, the, the forgiving were able to get really justly rewarded. And it's actually part of a good without me going on much of a tangent, which you can you can see the, the lead up to. But um, it, it's a good it's a good handicapping lesson. We were talking a little bit about before about what you do with a horse like Olympian, who was coming out of a bad effort where there was really no discernible excuse. Forte was coming out of an underwhelming performance where there was a very clear excuse, right? He had no pace to run at whatsoever. And he still put in a decent run and then flattened out a little bit late. This was a completely different circumstance. This is a horse that you were going to get a really good price on that you did have an excuse for, as opposed to a horse that you were going to get a really bad price on that you didn't really have an excuse for. Now, look, Olympian won, and anybody who bet on him, they're cashing. And what I have to say about it doesn't really matter. But I think you can see what I'm saying. You know, it was like the, the conversation about Mandaloon before the Kentucky Derby last year. There were a lot of people, and there were people who I respected that really liked Mandaloon. And they were forgiving him of a horrible Louisiana Derby performance. Well, the thing was, he was going to be 25 to 1. Right. Right. So if you're, going to, if you're talking about a long shot, you're going to be more liberal in terms of, of how you approach their last couple of running lines. When you're talking about a favorite, I think you want to stick to your convictions much, much more. So this was a situation where Forte went to double his morning line and ended up offering a tremendous amount of value in a situation where there was a clear path to how you could get to him based on what had happened in his prior start. You know, pedigree-wise, he looks like a horse will probably be okay going a little bit longer. Um, you know, I just, my concern is what I said before, is where will he cap out distance-wise? Could he be more of a one-run sprinting type? I think the damn side is pretty loaded on turf horses, so maybe there's a little bit of stamina that'll come from there. But um, we'll see. It was it was a nice win, and obviously, earning a 92 buyer speed figure in a race like the Hopeful is certainly going to put you in the conversation for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. His dam was a multiple turf winner around two turns. So, you know, you'd like to think there's going to be a little bit there that could help him out distance-wise in the end, too.
0: We'll see if they can – we'll see what they do going forward for sure. A couple others to touch on in here. Gulfport, a horse that uh, I feel like is now continuing to uh, collect trips after showing all that brilliance early. I'm inclined to give him an excuse and say maybe is is next time wherever he turns up going to be a place where we can finally get a price on this horse who's been long, you know uh, very very bet throughout his uh, throughout his career. I, I think folks might be getting tired of the act, and and I'm not sure it's completely fair with golf. Yeah, the odd thing about him was, and Steve Asmussen said
1: afterwards he felt like Flavian Pratt was trying to get outside, and 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 that was was why he kind of floated out coming off the turn and looked more like a get out than a, than it was being intentional to me. It looked more like he was, he was kind of drifting coming around the turn. I don't know if you felt differently, but um, that's a different situation. That's not a, Hey, I was just trying to get it out the middle of the track to avoid what could have been a slower path on the rail. So that would be my big concern with him. I also wonder at this point, Pete, if he was just a little overrated coming off of that battle, And, and, you know, it's a race that had a small field, We've not really seen a lot in terms of, of horses come out of it. And um, and then Damon's Mounds, who beat him in the Saratoga Special, I know Gulfport got into some trouble around the turn, but he just hasn't finished like the same horse that he did at Churchill. So I, I wonder if he might be, the pack might be catching up to them a little bit. The unfortunate thing is, is that I didn't realize, of course, lost in, the, in all of the hubbub of Saratoga, that Disarm, who was a very impressive winner, for Steve Asmussen back on Whitney Day has not worked since. I was expecting him in the hopeful. Yeah, so I wondered he was the one who I thought would almost certainly be in the hopeful. Um, I'm wondering if he ran into some kind of issue um, hoping that maybe whatever it is, it's minor and we might see him in
0: yeah, that might be the story of a couple of the most impressive two-year-olds we saw with with Prank, not, I don't think, having worked since that incredible maiden win. That was one where you said, spin away winner, the same way you might have said hopeful winner when Disarm crossed the wire. Hopefully those things are minor and they'll get back to business. Did you have any follow-ups? If you know anything about that, chime in. Or I was also going to just ask if you had any follow-ups on, uh, on Blazing Seven, so I thought you could maybe make some excuses for it.
1: He's a horse that I would say you probably want to give a little bit of a look to moving forward. Um, you could see him showing up in a race like the champagne and, and maybe running better. you know you, you you're inclined to give all of these horses a bit of an excuse because of the slop and uh, he the also ran so to speak. I mean, most strike was bad. I don't know if that may be because most Strike Stanford was a little bit of a mirage um, or maybe he didn't take to the wet track so you know it's hard to, to take a lot from it. I believe the last wet track hopeful winner was I'll have was uh Trinnibergke who beat I'll have another um is that right did, or did I'll have another win the hopeful I can't remember in twenty twelve twenty eleven it was running the slot yeah um, so you know we'll see what hey look if they if the form holds up as well as it did with those two horses, then hey, we're in good shape
0: <laughs> there was one since i think there it had to be since that uh, there was a lucas winner of the of the hopeful um but yeah, I'll have another. Did not win the hopeful. He ran in it and was uh, was actually well beaten. It was like his only, it was basically his only bad race. Um, funny enough, currency swap was the was the winner. Currency swap, Man. yeah,
1: yeah, right. But then, right that was uh, yeah Terry Pompey's first grade one. I believe I believe that was also Seth Clarman's first grade one.
0: Oh, fascinating! I certainly yeah. a game that had plenty of imp- plenty of impact on the current Saratoga meet. I can't remember the name of the. There was a Lucas horse, also around ten years ago. It's possible my memory is doing that thing where it was actually the year before. The, I'll have another year, but uh, it, yeah. Strong I'm, mandate went, in, went on a wet track. What was the name of the horse? Strong mandate. Yeah. Yes, you're
1: exactly right. He went on a sealed track.
0: Yeah. Yep. So yeah there, yeah, there was a and, couple uh, years. Yeah, there.
1: that was the best. The best story about the strong mandate. Hopeful is that the sixth place finisher was long on value.
0: <laughs> who we went on to own in a manner of speaking. Who We went on
1: to own a piece of, and, and that won a grade one that made us both grade one winning. Owners.
0: <laughs> they can't take that away from a snake. That's, that's the Never. beauty of it. Thanks. So, good, you know, thank you to our, to our friends and, uh, and founding partners, uh, 10 strike racing for single handedly making that, uh, making that happen. I mentioned prank and not turning up in the spin away. We, we might as well talk about what actually happened in the race. Leave no trace Gets the job done with a ninety buyer speed figure. There, what did you think? Uh, what did you think of this performance and the uh, and the potential for this one to have an impact on the division going forward?
1: Well, you know, one of the one of the unsung heroes of the training ranks at this meet was Phil Serpy, who had just an absolutely incredible meet. And you know, those of us that that follow the New York circuit regularly were we were sort of getting to like you know, does Phil Serpy even train anymore? Territory. Right. He was just you know he doesn't have many horses and, and a lot of what he has are homebreds and, and they're not particularly impressive um, at any stage of the game. but he really fired at Saratoga and one of his his only two-time winner at the meet was Leave no Trace and you know she was the we talk a lot about this on, on this show. She was the quintessential winner from the first jump, right She flew out of the gate. she immediately put herself into the race for Jose Lascado. Um She ran I thought she ran extremely well. She's a, she's a horse who's able to get her position. She's quick. I thought it was terrific. I, I thought it was really nice to see a, a lower level trainer, you know, a more, I should say a lower percentage, a guy who has fewer horses win a race like this because it just goes to show you there's more than a handful of, of trainers who can win races. And, um, and, and this is a horse with a lot of quality. She was also one of the, the maiden auction winners. So she was purchased for, I believe, a little less than $50,000. Um, and, and, you know, made no difference that she was up against regally bred horses like Wonder Wheel and Kaling uh, that she ended up overhauling late. So I thought it was a really gratifying win. The horse that you want to talk out about coming out of it is American Rockette, who I think American Rockette is going to end up getting probably a little bit too much discussion about her her antics coming out of the gate. American Rocket got a really big pace to run out in her debut and ended up gathering them in late. She has the look of a horse that's probably going to get better with distance. I would just caution everybody to be very careful with her in her next start. And if she shows up in the frisette, you, you, you don't want to take a short price a shorter price on this horse than you should because she made this big late run. Now, I get it. She made the only off-the-pace move. She had a lot go against her in that race. It was not a particularly fast pace. So there's plenty of reason to like her. But these are the kind of horses that get wildly bet. And, and, you know, I think that her trip is going to become something of, of almost mystical status based on what ended up happening. They didn't, you know, they didn't exactly crawl in there. Yes, yeah, she made a good, a good sustained run, but um, I'd want to be careful with her moving forward. I'd like to see Wonder Wheel and, and Kayling both show up. I'm sure they're going to, Wonder Wheel's going to go two turns in Kentucky, I would imagine, for Mark Cassie. And we'll see how she holds up to that. Is she clearly, uh, I thought she validated her win her in the debutante. I know she didn't really take a step forward, but. I don't think she ran poorly by any means and is and a horse that's uh, in the conversation for the two-year-old Philly Ranks at this point.
0: No, it's, That sounds about right. And lots of horses to watch with great interest when they come back. For me, the biggest story of the race was just really wanting to kick myself for underrating Leave No Trace. And some of it might just be that you, you get, we get so used to all the the biggest names and the biggest name Barnes. And you said, I just, I just, criminally underrated um, criminally underrated leave no trace and i think also being nominated as an mto in the in the pg johnson threw me off a little bit in terms of you know oh well it's not like they were loving her for this spot but it, it just none of that stuff matters at the end of the day she was one who was always supposed to get a good trip and was just clearly overpriced were you smart enough to leave her in your reckoning of the of the race or or did you end up like like i did she was one of the ones for me.
1: I didn't, have her, uh, I didn't have her right at the top of the heat, but I didn't underrate her terribly much. I thought there was another, another situation going on here that you could read a little bit too much into, which is that Irad had ridden her in her debut, and he was coming back and riding a Rudy Brissett shipper from Kentucky. And I think that the, the takeaway that you were supposed to have from that is that, I mean, I imagine WinStar. if WinStar really wants Irad to ride a horse, they're probably going to tell his agent, hey, we'd really like to have you. And I think that's part of the reason why he ended up on, on Shirley. Um, but, you know, Leave No Trace's debut, it held up in terms of, of the speed figure. And You Glow Girl, the third-place finisher, came back and improved her buyer by 33 points in her next start. So, I mean, this, was, this is one of those where afterwards, if you start to peel the, the layers of the onion back, you realize that Leave No Trace was actually a tremendous bet at 14 to one and a lot of what was going against her was really just circumstantial you know even stellar lady came back and didn't didn't increase her buyer figure but she ran well enough on the turf and she looked like a dirt horse anyway that was also a pretty hardy pace in in uh leave no traces debut so there was a lot there i think that you could take away and you could take away in sort of a positive direction you know the the buyer speed figure makers would tell you any chance you get to get a a co-top fig at 14 to 1, you're supposed to run to the window.
0: <laughs> no doubt about it. It was a big goof up by me on the figures, on the way the race was supposed to be run. we got a few minutes left on the show, but I have an ad break to get in. So we're going to go to that, and I'll come back right after this. Fixed Odds Betting, powered by Betmakers, is back and in effect at Monmouth Park, and the early returns are fantastic, with 70% of winners paying more on fixed odds than they are on the tote. Fixed Odds Wagering is now available throughout the state. This is an exciting new way to bet that really puts the power to get value in your hands because the odds you bet are the odds you get. You're going to be hearing a lot more about Fixed Odds betting opportunities across the In The Money Media Network. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Woodbine. Going to be having basically another Woodbine takeover next week with the Woodbine Mile coming up. But north of the border at Woodbine brings us two stakes this weekend as well with the Toronto Cup for three-year-olds on September 10th and the Wonder Where stakes for three-year-old Phillies on September 11th. For more information, go to woodbine.com. And of course, do not forget, next weekend, the big one, the Rico Woodbine Mile and a slew of graded stakes coming up on Saturday, September 17th. Save the date. We're going to have loads of coverage on the In The Money Media Network leading up to the big day. For more information, go to woodbine.com. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Adelphi Racing Club. One of the funnest parts of the summer for me was hanging out with Matt and the Adelphi team in those stretch boxes at Saratoga. And that's because... Adelphi is more than just a racing partnership. It's a real club bringing together like-minded individuals and giving a really interactive ownership experience with incredible amount of information on the runners you're involved with. It's a great fit for anybody looking to get more involved in racing and Adelphi were recently very active at the Saratoga Yearling Sale and there might still be a few opportunities left right now to get involved. An arrogant colt out of the family of Audible and Governor Malibu, a beautiful tonalist filly and also a hard spun coat who wowed the team. That one's headed to Ray Handel. Join the club, adelphiracing.com, the place to learn more or you can reach out directly to Matt Matt at adelphi racing.com. Follow on social, adelphi underscore racing on Insta and on Twitter at adelphi club. PTF back with Nick Tamaro on this uh, recap show of Labor Day weekend. A couple more races, uh, graded stakes that, that we saw this weekend out at Del Mar in the both the Del Mar Mile, which was won by Hong Kong Harry with a buyer speed figure of, uh, of 102, new top figure for. Hong Kong Harry by some way. This is a horse not nominated for the Breeders' Cup. I'm kind of thinking they probably didn't see quite enough to to supplement um, for from coming out of that race. But I don't know. What did you think? Do you have any thoughts on the, on the Del Mar Mile and what might happen next for a horse like Hong Kong Harry?
1: You know, this division kind of uh, – the horses in it got a big break when Michael McCarthy decided to run smooth, like straight in the Arlington Million. Because obviously he's kind of been the king of the the mile turf races, and I guess Count Again must be having some kind of issue because he wasn't in this race either. Maybe he's being pointed to the to the Pumor Turf Mile if he's if he's in training. So yeah, I mean, just like looks a little lesser, not dissimilar from the winner of the Del Mar Handicap. Probably not quite good enough to be on a on center stage. Count Again is working, so I guess we'll see him probably in Kentucky at some point. Uh, so yeah, I think that would be my my biggest takeaway. Nice win for the connections, no doubt about it. And uh, they've certainly got uh, got to enjoy a big day. Hey, Phil DeMato, when you've got all those horses, you know you can win with pretty much any of them, and he ended up winning uh, winning this time around.
0: Let's talk also before we leave our recap of last weekend about the Del Mar Derby. They put a lot of emphasis on the three year old turf racing out at uh, out at Del Mar and this one was won by a horse trying turf for the first time in the form of slowdown Andy for Mario Gutierrez and Doug O'Neill this this uh this this buyer came back okay um, but not you know nothing nothing to make you think the horse is going to be a, a player necessarily uh, among the older horses but thought it was a race worth talking about it looked fairly evenly matched on paper that's the way it turned off turned out on the track and one potential horse that I would give another chance to with a better situation is Balnikov, who was so impressive earlier in the in the meet. Another one for our friends at Little Red Feather. Any comments on the Delmar Derby horses to take out of it, etc.? I mean, isn't the most interesting
1: thing about this horse trying to figure out who the Andy is that they're referring to? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of Andys that that this could be. I could probably think of two right off the top of my head. But um, all kidding aside, yeah, it was a this was a first time turf effort slow down, Andy, and a pretty astute ride by Mario Gutierrez to put this horse on the lead. Don't know if he was instructed to do so by the connections, who, of course, also had McKinnon, who uh, was fourth in the Ocean Side, who would have undoubtedly benefited from there being a little bit more pace in front of him anyway, but but there was enough turf pedigree on this damn side to think that you could see some improvement from him moving to the lawn, and, and he ended up doing exactly that, so um, kind of a fun race to uh, to have a horse take a step forward like that. The Del Mar Derby is one that generally has been a a race on the pathway to the Hollywood Derby that we'll see coming up in November. I don't think there's any Breeders' Cup implications with this horse, uh, but I do think he can be a useful turf type in Southern California moving forward. And I would imagine that, you know, he and a horse like Capensis, who won the Virginia Derby yesterday, um, and some of the other three-year-old turf horses that we've seen in in the East Coast could uh, end up all getting together in the Hollywood Derby
0: competitive division for sure and yeah that would be the logical the logical endpoint did they do they keep the grade one on that hollywood derby do you know
1: yes i believe it is still a grade one um it's only dirt races in new york that get downgraded although there are some <laughs> there was actually the flower the flower bowl got downgraded which we didn't even mention in talking about the yeah. horrible ride but uh, yeah the flower bowl which yielded yielded multiple in the money Breeders' cup finishes last year was downgraded of course there's more of a of a backstory on that with the the committee not having a Naira representative. Of course, that worked against uh, Naira's uh, ability to keep some of the grades on those. But yeah, still a grade one on that weekend. That includes the matriarch and and um, citation. And there's another there's another marquee race that I'm forgetting. But that's always a lot of fun at the end of the year, right after Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, the turf festival, and I think they're dividing it over two weekends this year. Who knows? I'm, I'm, I might have to try to get out again. I really enjoyed getting there for that. While we're talking three-year-old turfers, I suppose we should throw in a word for Annapolis, who uh, who got the job done in a in a short field at something on the order of one to nine uh, in in the Saranac last week. But another horse, I wouldn't be too sure. You know, looking at figures, a horse you could make a case could be at the top of those uh, three-year-old turfers, I would think. I know it's hard to get too impressed over romping in a four-horse field at, at one to nine. But, I mean, how good do you think Saranac is?
1: You know, interestingly, Todd Fletcher came right out and said they're going to go the to Fulmore Turf Mile like at Keeneland. So I think this is a horse that he really likes. Um, it was funny. There were people that were opining on Twitter or were, were asking about who the, the easiest winner or the likeliest winner of Saturday was between flight line and Warlike Goddess, and I wanted to reply and say Annapolis is the likeliest winner on Saturday, <laughs> in large part because I mean the field he faced was just horrific. I mean, there was nobody in there that was remotely competitive on paper, and he looked to have an enormous pace advantage. So I guess the, the correct answer ended up being Flightline, but um, but Annapolis was definitely definitely a candidate. Yeah, he, he, he seemed good, and I think you know Todd handled him very well um he he set him up perfectly give him the opportunity at the big money and they found out in the saratoga derby and he's just not a distance horse but there's real money out there for milers and this feels like a horse that if he's able to keep in one piece will really have a say in next year's uh, makers mark mile uh four star day races like that
0: 96 on the buyer speed figure, which for his generation strong, I mean, compare that to the 86 of slow down Andy one, just to give a shout out to more than to comment on in, in particular, but always when folks who help us out with the shows do well, we like to, we like to give that shout out thin white Duke for an ownership group that includes Steve Christ scores in the lucky coin with a 91 buyer speed figure. This is a horse who's been running for them for several years now and has been, you know, a terrific, uh, to, terrific course to own, I'm sure. And uh, just, you know, claps to them and that ownership group. Anything else you saw in any of the maiden races or anywhere else over the weekend that you want to uh, opine upon before we uh, get to wrapping this up, Nick?
1: You no, know, we had the three two-year-old seven furlong races on Saturday at Saratoga. And I thought Instant Coffee was a particularly impressive winner of what looked like it might have been the deepest of the races. Uh, the other two were one a little bit more handy fashion by, by more front-running types. Um, but Instant Coffee was in, in the one with the uh, the heavily touted Krupy. Um So no surprise that, that he ended up going off a pretty big price. But I thought he was interesting, and we'll see where he surfaces next for Brad Cox. He's a horse who I think you could see go straight into grade one competition. I also thought the runner-up in there, Arthur's Ride, looked like a good horse. He came out of the second place finish actually behind Disarm, and came back and validated that quite well. They ran the fastest race of the day by far. So really looking forward to uh, to seeing where he lands next. Of course, you mentioned Dinway Duke. Nice to see him get the win for uh, for Steve Christ et al. And for Dave Donk. And that probably took a little bit of the sting out of the DQ of Succulent on Sunday afternoon that I think was a, a little bit more of a questionable call. But no, it was a really fun meet. Glad to have it uh, in the books now. and looking forward to what will be a, a really interesting and busy fall.
0: Instant coffee was another one of those. I just wanted to sort of punch myself in the face after the race, but at 1490 to one and then seeing, and I'd even seen that the great Andy Byer, who had a talking horses shift for the ages on Saturday um, had put the horse right on top, and even after that, I went back and was like, "Ah, from this post, I just can't see it." It didn't didn't bother to throw into to to any of the any of the gimmicks going forward. I felt I felt extremely silly about that. What did Andy have like nine winners or something on Saturday on on that show?
1: Yeah, I think it was nine winners. Really and really funny as an aside. In in my time doing some work for Andy Byer, I was doing talking horses. Uh, with with Andy Serling in Saratoga one of the years, and, and Andy Byer sent me a very rare text, and he said, good luck, little Andy can be very tough. <laughs> and so, I said, and I said, well, I'm, luckily, I'm very and of course, he was referring to, you know, little Andy, of course, taking a lot of shots at, at his his uh, broadcast partner's picks and things like that, and so of course, you know, Byer knew that, that little Andy and I talk racing all the time, so you know, it, it's a it was a great episode specifically because, you know, Andy certainly has this sort of have a take and don't suck mentality, similar to what we've seen in the past from Jim Rome, uh, and, and, and that's what and that's what Andy Byer did, right? He had great opinions. He really backed them up nicely throughout the entire show. And they ended up being right. So it was a lot of fun to see a, a legend like that really uh, show us all that, that he's still very much active, very much capable, and uh, and still very, very good.
0: That's awesome. Good. Very good. Very good assessment. And that was that was great to see um, from from Andy, who we're overdue to have back on these airwaves at at uh, at some stage soon. We'll make a note to make sure that we make that magic happen. Well, Nick, we're out of time. So uh, we're going to send this home, but uh, really appreciate you and, and all your help today. We'll thank our founding partners, 10 Strike Racing. We talked about them before. Also, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. Give generously to the great work they do for horses and humans through their Second Chances Foundation. To learn more, go to trfinc.org/players. Most of all, though, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. We got a lot of stuff going on. Daily coverage of Kentucky Downs this week. Making my maiden voyage there tomorrow. We encourage you to play in Horse Player Happy Hour. Just twenty bucks. Four more shows left in the regular season. But don't worry, you can participate in the prize pool. The added money prize pool, uh, which is worth, even if you play one week, you have a a shot to get a share of 10000 So uh, get involved. And that money goes to Aftercare as well. Horseplayers.com. Look for Horseplayers Happy Hour as far as that goes. Uh, Cheap and easy and fun. And then you can join Matt Bernier and myself, on thursday at four from about four to five as we guide you through all the action and look ahead to some breeders cup winning you're in action at the weekend this show's been a production of in the money media our business manager is drew Cotney. our chief creative officer is jonathan kinchin i'm peter thomas fornital may you win all your photos